very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to tonight's full interview, which by the way, it will truly be a trilogy, tonight we'll cover two hours of six. This interview will be broadcast in three different installments. Two hours tonight, two hours the next month, and the last part of the trilogy, the following month. So that's six hours of the life and technology of David Adair. Only the first hour will be available to the public. The next five hours will only be available to members. So if you have been procrastinating so far, this is it. Go to VeritasRadio.com right now and subscribe. You don't want to miss it. And before we begin tonight's interview, I want to share a message I received from someone who wants his truth out. Stay tuned for an exclusive Vox Populi interview coming very soon. His voice has been altered and certain information removed for his safety. Hello, Mel. Uh, this is a... I talked to... I called you earlier. Uh, I was hoping you could get back with me. Uh, this is pretty scary. I've been through an awful lot with the government. Uh, back in 01, they tried to kill me, and uh, so, uh, I told uh, a little bit about it. I used to do special ops. I used to also fly exotic aircraft, including spacecraft. My codename was I've done a lot of things, and it's real scary, and a lot of people need to know about it. I want the truth out. You have my permission to do that. We need to get together. Making this call puts me in danger. You know that. Please get a hold of me. You get a hold of me. I need to get together with these guys. We need to hit this. Get the truth out. All of it. And that was a portion of the message. I have included the rest at the end of this interview. I hope you can listen to it. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to submit a guest, want to be on this radio program, or simply have feedback, I always love to hear from you. 
just click on the contact button of our website. Tonight we interview someone I've been trying to interview for quite some time. Imagine this, a child prodigy turned top rocket scientist, and not, I'm not talking about Dr. Fred Bell, the late Dr. Fred Bell, I'm talking about somebody else. This other gentleman built his first rocket at the age of 11. He soon progressed to the point that he was drawing attention to his exploits by people such as General Curtis LeMay and Dr. Werner von Braun. At the age of 17, he was taken to Groom Lake, or as we know it, Area 51. His name is David T. Adair, an internationally recognized leader, an expert in space technology spin-off applications for industry and commercial use. At age 11, he built his first of hundreds of rockets, which he designed and test flew. At 17, he won the most outstanding in the field of engineering sciences award from the U.S. Air Force. At 19, he designed and fabricated a state-of-the-art mechanical system for changing jet turbine engines for the U.S. Navy that set world record turnaround times that still stand today. He is a world-class presenter and keynote speaker, seminar and workshop leader, and consultant. His presentations include little-known facts and anecdotes from his involvement with the space program, commercial technology development, films, and the things he has seen at Area 51. And he joins us directly from the mountains of North Carolina. Hello, David, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Very good, Mel. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And I could read your bio for the next two hours, but I'll let the listeners go to our website and, and, and read the rest because we have a lot of a lot of information that I want you to share with us here today. David, you've been recommended for years. We've tried to make contact with you, but finally a good friend of ours put us together. So I'm glad that Robert Stanley told you to give me a call, and we spoke for the last couple of days for a few hours. And folks, what you're about to, to hear tonight, and perhaps in future interviews, because I don't know that we can cover all of this for two hours. Perhaps Art Bell did it years ago perhaps we might be able to replicate it here today because there are things you haven't said in the past and i've given you the green light to say whatever you need to say because we are uncensored on this program first of all david give us more of your background where were you born take us back in time in chronological order let's go from there oh gracious okay um i was born in um 1954 um well, he said you wanted the whole thing. I have never told this part of my story. Um, the way I was born, uh, my mother uh, had her tubes tied um, after my after her second son, and so I really wasn't supposed to show up. And uh, because she had uh, complications with a pregnancy, and doctor tied her tubes because he said you um, you may not survive another childbirth. Well, nine years later, she's she's feel sick in the morning, and it turns out she's pregnant, and we have no idea how that happened. And so they, I went to give, uh, she went to give birth, and uh, more complications. So they had to take me by cesarean. And when they got me out, um, I was a a nice shade of light blue. I was a blue baby, which uh, means my oxygen 
is not exchanging red blood cells uh, with the oxygen. And um, and also my blood was the rarest there was, just about OB negative. And um, and this is in 19, January 6, 1954, in Welch, West Virginia. I guess That's my daughter's a- birthday, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, my God. Um, but anyway, get your head around the environment. Welch, West Virginia, a, a Pocahontas coal field coal town, 1954. Uh, you know, technology's not big in that area at that moment. And so they looked at me and they said, the doctor said, he's dying. Well, there's this man named Billy Rubin who created a machine that can change a baby's blood. But it there was only two machines and they were on tour. But that morning at that hospital in Welsh, West Virginia, the machine was down in the lobby on tour. And they said, really? So they they uh, ran me down there. They put me in that machine. And uh, the Billy Rubin was thrilled. He goes, well, here, I'll show you how it works. And I stayed in that thing for quite a while, quite a few weeks. And um, the only way they touch you, they put their arms in these big rubber gloves. So I didn't have a human being touch me for about six weeks. But my blood got changed over, and it's now the most common there is, A positive. But I still have the OB negative traits in me. So um, now I know I've been hanging around metaphysical people and conspiracy people, and boy, the minute they hear that, they're going to go, genetic engineering on this dude. And uh, I don't know, but it was just um, an oddity how I came in. But here I was. So uh, I grew up in um, uh, number 10 district, Pocahontas Coalfield in Welch, West Virginia. And um, I guess my parents noticed something odd about me right off the beginning. Uh, my mother told me um, she saw I was three years old and one of my toys, <laughs> a rocket, no less, got caught between the refrigerator and the wall, and I was standing there looking at it, and I didn't ask for any help. She was just watching me, and I went over and got the broom, came back, reached back there, and pulled the rocket out. And my mother's going, he's only three. He's not even talking yet. He figured that out. So um, mother decided to keep an eye on me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just started showing different traits. But uh, by the time I was seven, um, the I hung out in the library a lot, and the library wasn't very big in a coal town, and there was just a section over there in physics, and the librarian noticed that I was I had about every physics book there was. I was reading them all over in the corner. She came over to to me and asked me. She says, hey, "David, uh, what was that book?" So I handed it to her, and it was Quantum Physics Differential Mechanics, and she goes, "Sorry." You've been over here for hours. You're not, there's no pictures in these books, so you must be reading this. I went, yeah. She goes, you understand this stuff? Uh, yeah, I actually do. And she goes, well, how many have you read? I went, all of them. And I said, uh, I asked her, could you order me books? And she went, yeah, I can, but we'll order them, but you can't tell anybody because they get mad at me and um, for doing it to, for just one person, especially a child. And don't tell anybody you're reading this stuff, David, because it might might not set well with your friends. And uh, so just read these books and keep it quiet. And so she ordered me books uh, from everywhere. And that really helped because then I started being able to um, get everything situated in my head on where everything was in fusion containment, which back in 1954 there wasn't a lot. Um, However, there was fission stuff, but that still covered, um, it's only 10 years after Manhattan Project. So... 
I just kept reading through the years, and um, my parents, well, here's how, you, see, you want chronological order, here's a series of events. Well, but before you um, continue, were your parents involved in any capacity with the government at all? No, not, <laughs> are you kidding? My dad was a functional literate. He couldn't read or write. My mother taught him to read and write. Um, there's a movie called October Sky, and it's about a guy named Homer Hickman. It's a real person. Homer and I were born three miles from each other. Uh, he was born in uh, Coaltown. I was born in Welch. And uh, you'll see an old man in a suit. That's uh, Homer's dad in the movie. That man is my grandfather. He was the superintendent of the coal mines. So I'm really connected into that movie fairly well. When the producer made that movie, he knew about me. He said, I don't know which one to do, you or Homer. And I said, well, Homer's 14 years older than me, so age before beauty. And uh, I said, go ahead and do Homer's story. But um, um, so this it, was it, a true story. Yeah, it's a true story. Yeah. And, uh, and Homer is way older than me. Uh, I really didn't get to know him back then. I got to know him later. But um, we always joked, there's something in the water back there because two of us come out of there like that. Um, but what happened, my my grandfather was pretty well to do being a mine superintendent um, in the area. And so uh, since my dad married his daughter, he decided to help my dad out. My dad was extremely gifted in mechanics, auto mechanics, any type of, of mechanicals. And uh, so uh, grandfather... Um, opened up, a, uh, got a gas station, my dad opened up, and man, it was a booming business right from the first day. But what was interesting is that um, the best customers would come in at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I remember my parents hammering uh, blankets over the windows so you couldn't see the lights on. And these cars would pull in, and they got 396 Chrysler Hemi engines under the hood, and in the trunk is a 200-gallon tank, and it's not gasoline. Uh, they're moon runners, moonshine. And um, these drivers uh, coming to get their cars tuned up by my dad to really beef them up. And they didn't want the revenuers seeing the lights in the garage because the revenuers are looking for these cars. And with so powerful as they are, they're, uh, they're hard to catch. And that's how NASCAR come to be. That's where their drivers came from. Uh, they became experienced driving on curvy roads, eluding the uh, revenuers. So my dad was real quick. He could really change out or tune up a motor in a hurry. And um, so one day this guy came through, and um, his car broke down, and it was a Weber carburetor, uh, sometimes called a Spicer. And it's, it's an old carburetor way back then, but really complicated. It had a water jacket around it, and it was very complex. It takes you about half a day to change one. So the man said, uh, can you change my carburetor? And dad said, Sure. And uh, so the man was saying, you know, it's going to take half a day. Dad said, no, it won't. So the man said, really? He stood there and watched Dad do the whole thing. And Dad changed that thing out in 45 minutes. And the man asked him, do you always work this fast? And uh, Dad said, well, when I see what I'm doing, he didn't get the joke. But um, the man said, well, I'm coming from Detroit. I'm on my way to uh, Florida. I'm going to race. Um I want to hire you as my mechanic. And he sticks out his hand and goes, Hi, my name is Lee Petty. Now, that is Richard Petty's dad. And next thing we knew, we um, uh, 
we're on our way to Daytona, Florida, where my dad was with the Petties. And um, and so the first two years of my life, I was at Daytona Beach. And, uh, and for those who may not know who Richard Petty is, he's uh, nicknamed the King, a former NASCAR driver. Right, King Richard. They have a full-size bronze statue of him with a little girl reaching up to him to get her book autograph all in bronze. Right. And at Atlanta Motor Speedway, and he's called King Richard, and that's a, that's just not a frivolous name. That's that's a really earned title, and um, so that's extremely important here because um, my the first thing Dad had me do, whether I wanted to or not, I was overhauling engines. The first thing I overhauled was a 426 Chrysler Hemi engine. I was 12 years old, and I overhauled it from the block up. I honed it and did everything, put it on a dyno tester. And it was about 680 horsepower, and um, and it won a Grand National. So my dad was thrilled, and he said, "Man, I told Richard. Uh, actually, Richard wasn't even dying. He was leaves. Told Lee, he said, "Boy, wait till the world hears what David just did." He, and he and, both, and Richard both went, uh, "Fred, we can't uh, we can't tell anybody this. There's two reasons. Uh, there's a child labor law they get upset about, and that man over there named Bill France, chairman of uh, NASCAR, he'll hang us from a tree." So we can't say a word. And um, so uh, Lee turned around and asked me, he said, um, you understand that, David? I said, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. I just like like the work. And I did. And they asked me, can we do anything for you? And I said, yeah. Um, can I have, can I use the shops at night? And they said, you sure can. They gave me a set of keys and a code and um uh, uh, said if I couldn't find what I needed to tell them they'd order it. So, um, so there I am in the middle of a NASCAR racing shop, um, which is state of the art. They have all the, the tools, the benders, and the shears and the presses. Uh, I knew how to run those things even at that age. And my dad told me. Is that where is that where you acquired your foundation of engineering and inventions? Exactly, um, a NASCAR racing shop. And a NASA rocket shop, they're mirrors of each other. Both shops are designed for speed. And uh, we had drag racers back then. So the fuel in the shop was um, methane, nitro. Uh, they even had liquid oxygen, which requires special uh, equipment to handle that stuff. It's a cryogenic fluid running about 375 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. But... Um, also, they had aircraft, aluminum, stainless steel, um, every alloy you could think of because they could build their own bodies uh, on the cars. So that that was it. So I was, had everything I needed. And um, so the first rocket I built was bigger than me, and it was a cryogenic rocket. Uh, it wasn't solid propellant. It, uh, was How like old were you when you built your first rocket? I was 12 and a half, 13. And it was... Um, it was a, a cryogenic uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and um, quite a bit of a punch to, to the BTUs of hydrogen. So anyway, um, first rocket I launched, uh, uh, my mother was in the kitchen, and I had this thing setting out at the far end of the property, and there's no other houses around. And uh, my friends were all standing around looking at it, and it's tall, it's about eight feet, and... Um, so about 100 yards away was the control panel, so I walked up there, and I called everybody up to me, 
And they said, we're going to stand down here and watch it. And I said, no, I can't do that. They're used to lighting little uh, bottle rockets, you know, and you just go, and you stand right next to it. I said, you can't be down there. So they came up. My mother saw them last standing down by the rocket. So they came up and got behind me. And um, I turned on the ignition switches and the relays and everything and then detonated and, um, it. And it ignited. Man, did it go. Good God. I burned an area about the size of a football field. <laughs> and uh, it had a a plume under it about the size of a school bus, and it. Where did it land? How far? Well, uh, where we were it was very rural, and I had built a handheld trigonometry uh, altimeter. Uh, they're so easy to make. You know, NASA spends millions of dollars track rockets, right? I did it for four dollars and fifty cents. All you do is buy, get a little card. Uh, you take a piece of wood. Uh, rectangular shape, and you glue a protractor on it. You know, it looks like a half moon. And then you, uh, right in the center of the pro- protractor, is a hole there. So you attach this long stick, about 36 inches dead center. Then you scry uh, eyelets, like you put a screen door latch in. You put eyelets on each end of it. And then you measure 500 feet from the pad. That gives you a cosine of one on your tangents, on your uh, trigonometry tables. And then when it takes off, you just stand right where you're at and follow the rocket till it gets up to Apogee, the top of its um, flight path. And then um, you look at the protractor, take that uh, reading on the degrees, put it in, look at your trigonometry book, use a stopwatch while it's running, and I can pretty much accurately tell you the altitude and speed. Um, this thing was... <laughs> <laughs> I'd have binoculars a little faster as far as I thought, but uh, it probably got up to about uh, 50,000 feet, which is about 10 miles. 50,000 uh, feet? And what year was this again? This is 60-something. 1962. Wow. And um, it came back fairly close to where we were. I could really do drift and changes and calculations. And it... it it, when it came back, the, I had thermocouples that had air sensors on it, and as soon as they reached a cool-down point and a pressure differential, uh, the solenoids opened up the sides of the canisters on the side. The parachutes came out, and it landed about uh, within about probably about 800 feet of where we launched it. And um, but it did have drift factors on it, and I, I use before I launch any rockets like that, I fire smaller ones, and, and they have streamers when they are streaming back to Earth, and you can count the wind speeds. Wind speeds change dramatically as you go through different layers of altitude. But Were you in a very rural area, or did you factor oh, yeah. in that it could land in a, somebody's roof? No, no. It was, uh, I knew it wasn't going to travel miles, and I had about a five-mile radius of nothing. Okay. And so it landed, and uh, went over and picked it up, and it was fine. And, um, but my main concern was that incinerated about a third of the yard and I thought my dad was going to kill me. So he came home and he was upset, but not because of burnt grass, but because he wasn't there when I launched it. <laughs> so uh, we launched it again. And um, But what was funny, the first time we launched it, my mother was in the kitchen. Everything in the house is rattling. It is so loud. It's like rolling thunder. And um, so things started moving in the kitchen and my mother runs out and she asked me, where's your friends? Because she last saw them standing by the rocket, and uh, which is just incinerary down there. So uh, I turned around where they're standing behind me, and <laughs> I mean, they were gone. They weren't even allowed to play with matches. And uh, 
I, they, so my mother asked me, where are your friends? I turned around and looked at it. probably in the next county by now. So um, I didn't see him for the rest of the day. But I remember my mother and I standing there looking at that thing, watching it go, and uh, and listening to the rolling thunder, and I asked my mother, I said, why am I so weird? You know, my friends can't play with matches, and I'm looking like NASA down here. And um, my mother said something that stuck in my head, but I couldn't figure out until years later, but my mother was watching that rocket go, and she goes, I'll just tell you, David, you came through me, not from me. And I never could figure it out for a long time. But uh, Your mother said that? Yeah. What does she expect? Well, I don't mean to be disrespectful to you, your mother or your father. Did you ever do a DNA test? Uh, yeah. There's, um, when they had to do all the blood um, uh, changeover, that, that, yeah, I was definitely a product of both of them. Now, we could jump way ahead to present day. Because I'm working on something that what you're leading to might help. Uh, I have a patent pending going on right now with a device that I've built. I've been working on it for years. And it really was this incident that caused it to happen. Uh, I call it the Gamma Ray Creation Project. And those uh, faxes I sent you, uh, if you look at, at fax number three, that big writing there uh, is two pages. Um, on that first page, you see that black square with the four green dots on it? Yeah, what's that? Okay. I only see black and white, but uh, yeah, I see it. Okay, well, they're actually in color. Um, uh, the top pa part of that photo, it looks like a planet having a solar flare. Uh, actually, what that is, that's, an, that's a human egg from a, from a female. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, this is a device that in vitro process is using at Northwestern University. Uh, Northwestern, the in vitro people are uh, trying to solve a problem with, um, uh, with the in vitro system. They're losing about half their eggs. So I don't know if you knew this or not, but eggs are covered in um, a zinc coating. And what happens is um, when the sperm enters the egg, it leads to a surge of calcium, uh, which triggers the release of the zinc from the egg, and the result is you have a flash. So eggs that have the biggest flashes that they catch on camera, they're most likely the eggs that's going to fertilize. And the ones that don't flash, very flash, very little, they kind of look them over and, you know, and not choose to use them. Because a flash, like an electrical reaction, you mean? Yeah, it's a chemical reaction. Uh, it's the calcium igniting the... Um, uh, the zinc that's all over the eggs. So when that like you would, like you would ignite magnesium, for example. Exactly. Um, so when that little sperm bores into that egg, you get a flash. Now a lot of people have called that the creation spark, which you know could very well be. I don't know. The spark of life. Exactly. And they're trying to do it to see which eggs would be the best candidates to fertilize, because it's very hard on a woman going through the in vitro process. But um, I called them up and I said. Uh, I have, a, I have a device that you might be interested in, um, and I think it could help you with your uh, your flash problem. Uh, what I, I told him what I did, and they went, are you serious? I went, yeah, I have a patent pending on it. Have you ever heard of a cloud chamber? You know what a cloud chamber is? A cloud chamber is a device that sits on a table, and normally it's plexiglass, so you can see through it. You fill it with a, this special gas, 
And uh, Griffin Observatory in L.A. has one. Uh, Center of Science Industry in Ohio has one. Uh, a lot of the big science centers have them. They just set out in the lobby. And you're looking at the big, uh, well, this cloud in this big plexiglass square box, and you're seeing all these streaks go through it and all different patterns flying everywhere. And you're looking around and go, well, where are the streaks coming from? This thing's not plugged into anything. What is that? And what it is, it's gamma rays coming through the roof of the building, going through the cloud chamber so you can see its streak, through the floor of the building, through the planet, and out the other side and keeps going. Gamma rays travel billions of light years for billions of years. And... Um, that started me thinking. I thought, well, look at the look at the gamma rays flying through that thing. It's continuous. You're constantly being hit. Everybody is being hit by gamma rays all the time. So I had this thought, actually it was a dream, that um, I saw this sperm, and it was swimming to this egg, and just as it's starting to bore its way into that egg, the woman, you know, is making dinner in the kitchen, walking somewhere, reading a book, and she's moving, and just at random, at the right time, when that sperm is born into that egg, a gamma ray particle slams with the sperm, and the sperm and the gamma ray particle both go into the egg simultaneously at the same time. And then the gamma ray goes on through the woman and on through the building and the earth and keeps on going. point is, I believe that gamma ray could dump something into that egg uh, along with the sperm. And it might be an answer why we have just a few of them, why we have Da Vinci's, Michelangelo's, and Einstein, Hawkins. Why do we have these when their family siblings are normal? But these Wait a second. Are you basically saying that, let's, let's change the word gamma ray, and I'm not a scientist, so correct me if I'm wrong, with a laser. And you've, you've heard about the experiment with the salamander, have you? Uh, no. Uh, which one are you referring to? The salamander, where they have a salamander egg and a frog egg, and they send a laser through the salamander, right. hits the the frog, and the frog is born with salamander attributes. So my point right. is, are you saying that we can actually transfer information on the gamma ray or laser that could equip that egg or that fetus with information that makes them different than their peers? I don't know. That's why it's just a hypothesis, and I'm building a machine to find out. Uh, it'd be a little bit long-term because once I have a donor's egg and I can catch on film the gamma ray and the sperm hitting at the same time, boy, what an interesting picture that's going to make. Um, then um, we put the egg back in the host, the child grows up, and then we'll see how smart the child is. If the child's off the charts, yeah, that's probably what it is. Gamma rays did something. And no offense to women, uh, XY chromosomes, it just seems that the men dominate in this area. Perhaps it's at the point of creation why it does that, I don't know. But they're certainly genius women, absolutely. Uh, and not fairly recorded in history because men are writing history books. Right. But um, but does seem to be a dominance of men, but at least that's how I can, I'm just working off of recorded history, which is probably biased. But... I told uh, Northwestern, yes, I said, you'll be able to to see uh, the second step of this thing. And they just thought that was really interesting and thought I was strange because how did you come up with an idea? Like I said, I just dreamed it one night. And um, I'd like to know. Uh, it, I won't 
62. I won't live long enough to see the child grow up, but I just got a suspicion that might answer why we have such brilliant people through the time, and it's not a bunch. It's just very, very few. And uh, I think it's when a woman just is the uh, pregnant or getting, about to get pregnant or her uh, egg's about to have a sperm go in it, and she's walking, and she walks right into a gamma ray path, and it hits. The timing's got to be just incredibly precise on this. But when, when would a woman be exposed to a gamma ray burst? Would it have to be from the sun? Yeah, and if she was exposed to a gamma ray burst, uh, there would be nothing left to talk about. <laughs> right. She would just be ash, and um, not even ash. And the planet she's standing on would be ash. Uh, gamma ray bursts are the most, about the most powerful thing in the universe. Um, but anyway, it's just, uh, we we kind of got off track there, but I was um, just curious about that, and that's uh, that's something I've been working on. And Have you been able to, because obviously some people who are listening to us may think that there are some, you know, moral moral issues with this. What about, because you're not hurting anything. Have you been able to do this with animal animal eggs? Yeah, uh, well, uh, human is what I wanted to be interested in, and um, and you, there are people more more than happy to volunteer. Um, and I'm not changing or altering anything. I'm just observing and recording, and um, I just want to see what happens. But no, but you're changing the nature, aren't you? In essence, no, aren't you? I'm, well, I'm uh, I'm making us all aware of it been going on forever you know that's why we've had copernicus and newton and and uh, michelangelo and it's all through the renaissance but it seemed to have been an unusually high amount of them in the renaissance period but um but still they come through through the years and um why do you think there was a preponderance of these geniuses during the renaissance period was it because after every dark age we hit bottom and well there's only one way up well um I look at it more on a cosmic level. Um, you know, we'll talk for an hour, and the Earth has moved through space uh, hundreds, a hundred thousand—I forgot what the figure—hundred thousand miles an hour. Let's just use that as a reference. So, if we talk for two hours, this planet has moved from point A to point B, two hundred thousand miles through space in uh, in those two hours. Now, I—it's just a theory, but I suspect that the Earth went through a very heavy gamma ray area uh, in space, and it caused, uh, you know, an, an inordinately high number of, of, if the gamma rays are responsible for this, that's why we had so many people in the Renaissance period, because the Earth went through a certain area of space where the gamma rays were more condensed, and you had more eggs being hit, and that's why you had a Renaissance era. Can we look at the gamma? See, for example, we get ice ice core samples. We can actually look at specific time intervals. Could we look in time at time intervals when we had those gamma ray? Can we call them bursts at certain times in history and pinpoint where all these geniuses came from to see if it matches? I don't know. Excellent question. Um, I'm just trying to get a look at the first one on film and. Uh, but it's what this is research. This is hypothesis theories. I don't know. I'd like to know, and I guess for everybody standing around, we would say, "Yeah, I'd like to know that too." Uh, so we're just—I'm uh, just working on it, and um, I, you know, I don't have answers yet. But it's—it's it's just this idea, the thought, the theory um, is interesting. I thought uh, when I saw it in my dream, I woke up thinking, "Dang, that's interesting. That's an interesting theory." 
let's see if we can um, catch it on film. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's all it is. It's just something to think about. So but you I did a huge that, uh, on the patent research. There's no one got anything like this going. You did a huge fast forward there, but you left a lot of things in the middle. Oh, about it's 60 been, years. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back in time. I don't want to forget about that uh, that uh, meat in between the sandwich, especially the time when you were called to uh, take a little ride somewhere in in Nevada. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, you want a chronological order, so uh, yes, that's what I'll, I'll be true to that. So after I've been building a lot of uh, rockets uh, quietly on my, on my own in a um, with the aid of really nice shop and materials to work with, um, the rockets just kept getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster. And um, I just like flying rockets. That's all I really was doing, just flying rockets. But uh, then it was around age 13. Um, I don't know, just something started. It's just these dreams started, and they just would not quit. I couldn't really figure them out, just a lot of math, and I thought it was just dreams from all the math that I was reading, because uh, I was ingesting all the physics I could get my hands on, and um, so anyway, uh, I wake up and I can't really remember, I just remember seeing all this math I couldn't remember too well. So my mother gave me an artist pad, which I laid on top of me, and I had a little night light that you, with the button right next to me so I could flip it on. So I'd wake up, and I'd write down on this artist pad what the best I can remember, fall back to sleep, and it starts up again. And then I'd wake up, and I'd wake up two or three times uh, during the night and write stuff down. And next morning I get up, and I can't remember until I look at the pad. And then I go, oh, my God, I remember all this stuff now. But here's where it gets weird. Um, the dreams started coming almost uh, every other night and every night. And... Um, uh, ended up with 93 pages of this stuff. And what's weird is that when you write it down and you go to sleep the next night, the dreams would pick up exactly where it left off on the math. So it's a, it was like you want chronological orders. It was A through B, A through Z in order. And uh, I thought, how is that happening? Because what do, you, what do you think the source of this information was? I haven't a clue. Um all I was amazed that each night was a consecutive night. It was a, the next page. It was like reading a book, literally, and you just flip pages. And there was a few things missing here and there that I had really tough, but I figured it out. But it took me quite a while. But uh, I went from age uh, 12 and a half to around age 15, about two and a half years, I got all this written down. And then I started looking at it, and uh, and I, I I really was amazed at what it was. When I first started, um, I had read enough physics books to know it's it's, it's a, a fusion process, not a fission. The only thing we had running back then was fission. And all you all know about nuclear power is just about all fission. That's the evil twin. That's all you all have known. You know, the thing can... Um, the design of a fission reactor is really not good. It's um, first it can uh, lose the water, and the pile rods will get exposed. And they get so hot they can get to the temperature of the sun, melt through the floor of the plant into the earth, and then 
uh, it, in theory, it'd have enough temperature to burn its way all the way to China, called the China Syndrome. But it won't do that. It'll go down when it hits the coal, burns the concrete out of the floor of the plant, hits the coal. So Chernobyl, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima, they're all fission reactors. Exactly, and they all had a meltdown, and they all had a blowback, which um, disastrous results. They're nasty. The radioactivity is is, is extreme. Uh, you can have material laying there thirty thousand years later. You can walk by, and it'll still kill you. So. It's just a mess, and you can also make, uh, with fission reactors, uh, you can make fuel for nuclear warheads. Well, that's not good. And, um, and it's just, you get the waste. What do you do with the waste? You can't just put it anywhere else lethal. It'll kill people just walking by it. So they, uh, they had to yuck a mountain, but I think they've got something else to replace that. But point is, you've got tons, hundreds of tons of this stuff. Okay, that's the world of a fusion nuclear reactor, and it's not a it's not the best thing to have. Now let me introduce you to the good twin, which y'all have not met yet, but you will soon. This is called electromagnetic electromagnetic fusion containment, and um, don't get it confused with uh, cold fusion. It's just the opposite. It's anything but cold. It's running about 50 million degrees centigrade, which is 10,000 times hotter than the surface of the sun. But what uh, contains it? I mean, you'll tell us, but I'm just thinking in my mind, in my limited scientific mind, how can you contain such such high temperature? And you have a great working mind, and that's exactly the question you should ask. Anybody should ask him. There's no material that can hold something running at 50 million degrees centigrade. And... uh, and that's only the first part of it. Second part um, is that well, let's back up. What? How, you're right. No material can contain it. So how do you contain it? It's. I'm going to make this very simple for everybody. You build through the electromagnetic coils and the magnets and systems. You build a magnetic bottle, and inside that magnetic bottle, inside the magnetic fields, you can detonate an H bomb and contain it. And now, you have the power of the sun inside a magnetic bottle that you can tap on at will. So isn't that an interesting concept? Now, imagine that's that's an electromagnetic fusion containment nuclear power plant. So that power plant sitting there can heat, you think you can heat up water (laughs) at 50 million degrees centigrade? Uh, You will heat up water turns this big steam um, dynamos, which will turn the, the generators, which will create electricity, and there's your power plant, and you got a sun powering your, your, your source. Now, good thing about these reactors, they're sitting there. First of all, they cannot have a meltdown. They don't have pile rods weighing hundreds of pounds. We only use two little sources of elements that are about the size of baby peas, just two of them. So there's no meltdown. The temperature is so high when you shut off the reactor, everything's cooled down, you can open the door and walk in it with shirt sleeves. Zero radiation. There's no radiation in this reactor. And also, um, no waste. Can't make nuclear fuel for warheads with it. It's the exact opposite of what the fission reactors are. And... Your people are saying, I'm sure that's going, well, wait a minute. How come we haven't heard about this? You know, Well, it's been around for decades. 
if you um, before the internet, but now with the internet, you can just type in electromagnetic fusion containment, and MIT will come up, my name will come up, NASA's name will come up, and um, uh, what it is is very difficult to do. Uh, it was easy to do fission because basically what you're doing is releasing energy, not containing it. So you blow a big hole in the ground in Nevada called Trinity Test and the beginning of Manhattan or the end of Manhattan. So the, it was easy to do to release energy and you build a big, big bomb is what you did. But now to keep that fury contained at bay and tap on it at will, well, that's a whole different ball game there. And that's when you go into fusion containment. And um, it's the math. It's very complicated. And also the design of the reactors. Uh, there is a fusion containment community. Look it up on the Internet. It's been around for decades. Matter of fact, most of them uh, have built CERN. You're familiar with CERN, right? Sure. Okay. Well, And I'll ask you later, after you tell me your story, I want to know what your take on what's the real purpose of CERN. I don't think it's what they're telling us. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah, in search of the God particle. So, well, uh, the point is, fusion containment community has been around for decades. And I haven't interacted with them much. There's a few of them I've talked to. I've, I got on an elevator by mistake in Washington in one of the big buildings, and it was the elevator was only for uh, senators and congressmen. I didn't know that. So I'm wearing a suit, and everybody thinks I must be a politician. But there were some talk, um, specialists with this group, and they were the fusion and containment community. I went, oh, my gosh, what a coincidence. And I was listening to them talk, and I just turned around to them and said, you've been on the wrong design for the last 75 years. That's why you can't get containment. And the people looked at me and said, we just had a meeting about that. We were all were talking, but we're on the wrong design. Yeah, yeah, you've been on it. I said, you should listen to Einstein. He said that his definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I said, you need to drop the designs you're on and go to an entirely different way, and I'll give you a clue. It's how the magnetic fields are shaped when you build the magnets. And he went, who are you? <laughs> I went, uh, I'm a guy that got on the wrong elevator. <laughs> and I left. <laughs> and, what are the uh, chances? What are the chances of that happening? And, uh, yeah. Now, they told me the official word, this was about two years ago, the official word was, I asked them, well, when are we going to get containment? They said, well, we, we talked about that. Uh, we need another $80 billion in 40 more years. And I said, really? I didn't want to tell them. I already did it back in 1971. <laughs> and, uh, and I proved it with a, a rocket engine. But um, uh, I didn't say anything. I just let it go. But I told them... Uh, uh, there is a way that you can have fusion containment uh, for about $26 billion, and you'd get it in three to five years, and you have a working power plant, and then you're ready to start spreading them across the planet. Well, let me ask you this. How many power plant, nuclear power plants do we have in the United States? You know, More or less. I used to know that. I think, don't hold me on this, I think it's around 80. Okay, about 80, close to 100. What happens if there's an EMP and we lose the power grid. I know they have, they have backup for about 10 days, 30 days at the max, and they all go into meltdown. What would happen? Um, well, hopefully, the, all the safety systems would catch in, and the 
pile rods be extracted under a scram. That's an emergency shutdown. And the things will just cool down and not do a, uh, a mess like Chernobyl or um, Fukushima. Uh, the, they would all just shut down, and that would be it. Um, better learn how to uh, uh, make a campfire. <laughs> There's 100, by the way. The number is 100, precisely. Okay, well, if they all scram perfectly and they all shut down, you're okay. They'll be contained in their containment cells. The radiation be contained. It just won't be any power anywhere. Um, and that's a big if they can all do that because, um, they, you know, under those conditions, I don't know if they ever hit a reactor with an EMP in a real test. That would be an excellent test to do if they hadn't done it. Um, but if it does and uh, they can't, get their uh, pile rods extract, uh, God help, you'd have a hundred Chernobyls on the continent of North America. No one would survive. Wouldn't that be an extension level event? I mean, you have Chernobyl and, and milk in New York shows signs of radiation. Imagine a hundred at the same time. Western Hemisphere, I, I, well, it depends. If we're, on the Western Hemisphere, it'd be an extinction level event. You would you wouldn't survive that. It'll be too much radiation, and then eventually, in time, with the the uh, uh, weather and just winds and the water, because many of them are located in the coast, right? Yeah. Oh, it'd be bad. The, the other side of the planet would die before too long as well. It would spread by the um, airstream and uh, jet stream and the rotation of the planet. Uh, it eventually encase the entire planet. It, it, so if you have a working model of something can be that could be the invert, that would be totally positive, non-radioactive, that could be contained easily, do you have a working model that you get percent? Yeah, uh, that's what my rocket engine was. See, there's only two types of rocket engines on Earth. There's solid fuel and liquid fuel. And that's all that NASA uses, China Space Academy, European Space Agency, um, Soviet Union, it's, it's all they use, just solid or liquid fuel, and that's it. In 1971, on June 20th, when I launched my rocket, it was neither one. It was something else. It was an electromagnetic fusion containment engine. And um, it was, uh, it, what it was, I, I'm not a rocket scientist. People call me rocket scientists all the time. And to be fair to rocket scientists, I don't think I can hold a candle to those guys. I'm... Um, that's not what I was. That's not what I am. I was, I'm after a, a electromagnetic fusion containment nuclear power plant. That's what I'm trying to build. And what I had to do was to test my theorems. The only medium that I could find that would work would be a rocket engine. So anyway, we'll go back to my story, uh, my life story. So I build all well, these. Before, before before you go there, Ed, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I don't want to leave this alone for a moment. Couldn't you test this on, say, your home, power in your home in a microcosmic level? Actually, see, that's a great design about fusion containment. Once you get the primary fields closed and you get a, uh, a reactor up and running, then you can scale that reactor system up to as big as you want it where you can power the planet, or you can scale it down small enough to where it would just power your home. That's my point, yeah. It could even power a car or a plane. And um, it would, um, that's the way to go. Eventually, uh, what I would, 
would want to do and get that thing going, uh, we introduced the technology to the planet, and um, there's two ways, uh, two reasons I want to do that. Um, you want to, well, kind of jump way ahead to present here. Uh, what I intend to do with, see, I've been sitting on this for 45 years. Now, my fields are sustained at 4.5 seconds. Now, you're sitting there going, well, that's not much. Yeah. It's more than NASA. Well, NASA and a lot of the big uh, agencies have spent tens of billions of dollars. And the best anybody's gotten is like .00786 of a second. So I'm at 4.5 seconds. That's like an eternity. But it's, it's long enough where I can see in the math where I can close the fields. The problem is processing the algorithms through the models of and the computer speed. Uh, you're running at the fastest around here is one gigahertz. I would need a computer of about 100 gigahertz, but I have a way of getting around that. Um, but uh, there are four phases in my system to a completed uh, power plant. I got through one half of phase one, and they stopped me. Uh, that because that's all they needed uh, was a blast of speed. Boy, <laughs> did they get what they wanted. Um, but we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Uh, yeah, um, back to my story. Okay. Uh, when um, So I was building all these rockets, and uh, I started having problems. Uh, we had moved to um, Ohio, and... Um, and I was lucky. It was giant farm areas, huge farms everywhere. I was living. In, I was in a, graduated from a high school called Centerburg, Ohio, and as the name is is real. Uh, they are the gen, uh, geographic center of Ohio, dead center of Ohio. So that's where I, that's where I was building the stuff, and um, and I was really lucky. I, I lived on the edge of this farm, and there were four farms connected. Think of a window pane with four different panes, and right in the center of those four panes is where my desk was, or my lab, and um, so I had these big four farms around me, and this is 1966 now, and uh turns out that uh, Star Trek just started in 1966 in September, and the, right. four farmers, the four farmers that owned the four farms, they were just by, you know, they were middle age, but they were crazy about Star Trek. So they saw me building these rockets and launching them, and I, they were landing out in their cow fields. And I asked them about all that and what, you know, how can we make sure we get along with each other, I, but I could use your your fields for a recovery area. And they, they were really nice. And uh, Carl Compton, uh, that was the Compton Egg Farm, he said, um, why don't you come over on my farm and get at the northwest corner, which puts me in the center of all four farms, right, where the center crosses in the window pane. So I have equal distance in four different directions of the compass. And the farmers got together and got backhoes and um, and made me a, a, a launch platform out there. And uh, so I, I started flying the rockets out of there. And um, I, had, I don't tell the story very often, but um, when you're a professional speaker, you need to develop a thing called a signature story. That's a story that only you can tell because it's personal. 
And my signature story uh, turned out to be uh, one day launching rockets out in a cow field. <laughs> and what happened? Um, they built uh, these rockets would take off, and the cows, you know, very interesting. I like cows. They um, they're very uh, pattern oriented, and uh, so they would stand around and watch me launch this rocket. If they see me uh, walking back to the to the control pads, they'd all back up pretty slow. But if they ever saw me running, <laughs> they all turned and ran because they knew something was going to blow up. And I had a lot of explosions. But the cows got used to it. Well, one day, um, the farmers decided to uh, build a pit because the rockets would explode. And I, was, I told them I got concerned about scrap, uh, shrapnel hitting the cows because they don't run back far enough. So they dug out this big earth pit with an earth ramp that I could go in and out of with a car, and that worked perfect. So I'd be down there in the pit um, hooking the rockets up, and I'd look up, and all these cows are around the pit looking down at me, chewing on their grass. It was like a like a surgeon's theater. And I, I got to where I talked to them, and... Um, so they see me come out of the pit as a pattern. If I'm slow, they just all turn around back up about 100 yards away from the pit and watch, wait for this rocket to come out of there. But they ever saw me run out of there, they all turn and run. So it, they got kind of used to it. But I had a terrible mishap one day. Um, I was trying to build a two-stage rocket. Now, let me tell you about staging rockets. Um, it, it took NASA 40 years to master staging of rockets. Uh, the Soviet Union never did get it right, and uh, it's very difficult, and I found out personally why it is. Uh, I launched a two-stage rocket, so it was coming out of the pit, and uh, just as it got to the event horizon, the opening of the pit, uh, the first stage uh, detonates. It just blows into the, back into the pit, but the blast turns the second stage on its side, and now it's going across the landscape like a torpedo. And it's heading for the herd of cattle. And I'm going, oh, my God, it's going to hit these cows. So I just was, I just screamed, oh, God, help me. And the rocket did a bounce, and the nose went down on the ground, and it's stuck there, and it's vibrating because the engine's still running. And it just shakes itself apart, and it detonates. And this thing, this is a cryogenic fuel rocket, so it's uh, got liquid hydrogen in it. Now, let me tell you something about liquid hydrogen and why it should be used in jet airplanes. The biggest thing that kills people in a crash is not the impact. It's the fire. fire. Their wings are full of fuel, which uh, people think jet fuel is real explosive. It's not. It's like a terrible grade kerosene. It's very heavy, very oily. and uh, But once it gets burning, it's pretty intense. And that's why the smoke and fire is what kills everybody. Now, if you had your jet aircraft today and had their wings built where they would hold liquid hydrogen, what would happen is when they crash, the hydrogen, before it can collect itself good enough to detonate, it will rise about 20 to 30 feet above the ground and then detonate. So all the fuel burns above people, and the people will crawl out of the wreckage, and nobody's burned. That's been on the drawing boards for decades. That's not something I did. That's something that's been around for decades, but nobody wants to change over to it because of money. Well, how cost-effective would it be to, well... You would have to change the the engines and the and the containment of the wings, but right. how cost effective would that fuel be? Well, they would say you know it it costs 
it cost too much. Right. Well, let me ask you, if your butt was burning alive in an aircraft, I don't think you're going to be arguing about it too much. Oh, no, no, no. I'm playing devil's advocate, but I know that these big companies are only concerned about the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, having a few crashes every so often is something that's expected. They have that in their in their legal uh, pot, if you will, in the future in case something happens. Exactly, um, and this this is a this is a proven technology, but it's the bottom line that stopped it from being implemented. So it's sad, but why this has the bearing on the story? Back to the cows, uh, the rocket just ruptures, and I can see this. I can look past the rocket and the fuel, I see the fuel's rising up and I'm looking at the herd of cattle and they're all standing there staring at this thing and it's only about 100 yards from it and it went up about 20 feet, sure enough and it detonated. And you've got a fireball that's just enormous and I'm looking under the fireball at the herd of cattle and their eyes are about as big as saucers and they just, like an army, they did an about face all of them at once and it was Stampede. <laughs> so that off. was that was your crash test right there. <laughs> it wasn't. The cows took off in a stampede, but the bad thing is, on the far side of the herd, looking away from everything, is this one little cow that didn't see all this, and she's just standing there. And the stampede just ran her over. And I run over there, and I look at the cow, and it's all busted up. Its sides and insides are hanging out, and it's dead. And I was, I was real, I knew this one particular cow, just really, just, I was just absolutely devastated. And then here they come, the farmers from all four directions. <laughs> they got there, and first thing they asked me, you okay? And uh, they saw me crying, and I said, yeah, I'm okay, but this cow's not. And they looked at the cow, and they went, yeah, that's a dead cow, all right. <laughs> so they, uh. One of the guys said, I'll get the front end loader. So they go get the cow, and they pick it up, and we all go over to uh, Carl's Compton's barn. And uh, it's in the summer, and it's about 90 degrees, and so they were all talking to each other. It's too hot to go to the market with right now. We're just going to do it right here. So they put a chain around the cow's neck, and they hoisted it up on this tree. Uh, they had a, an area that was made for this stuff. And they told me, David, you're going to have to dress this cow. And I'll looked at him and said, why in God's name would I want to put a dress on this cow? And they all busted out laughing because I didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, about that time, I heard this guy start up this ring, and it's like a chainsaw cutting tool. And he was showing me how to cut this cow, and I started at her throat, and I went down to her anus, and all the stuff poured out. It was just god-awful. But... um they showed me a diagram of how you cut a cow up, and I stayed there. I was <laughs> one of the guys who chewing tobacco and came up and asked if I wanted to chew tobacco, and that did it. I, was, I blew groceries everywhere. But I kept at it. took me all day, but I cut this cow up into all the steaks and the ribs and the uh you know, the shoulders, all the stuff. I'm following the diagram. Yeah, that's what they were doing. They were just cutting it so they could use it at least, right? Yeah, the, oh man, this is a this particular cow with a black Angus. So that's a lot of money you're talking about. This right. is almost an 800 pound animal. And um, so they watched me cut and they said, uh, dang, man, he cuts way better than the butcher does. They are so precise. I mean, I was going at it like surgery. And uh, the women were there, the farmer's wives, they were wrapping up everything. That, that thing dressed out, uh, I forgot how much I got. This is about 600 pounds of meat. 
and um, they said that was excellent work, and I was dead tired. They had to just the the, <laughs> the farmers got garden hose and hosed me off out in the yard. I was just such a mess, and. Um, so my dad came home, and I thought he's going to be mad about this. And what I was worried, I was going to lose my uh, lunch facility. So they uh, they talked to my dad, and my dad was happy as heck. He got a hundred pounds of steak to put in the freezer. <laughs> and uh, did, the you, did, you, did you gain any attention from the scientific government, military community after your lunches? Um, yeah, that's about to happen. Um, so. Uh, the farmers were happy with me. I got to keep my lunch facility. They all got a ton of steaks that were cut precise. Didn't have to pay for a processing, so they were happy about that. And the women, uh, they were great uh, needle workers, so they they stitched this hat with this <laughs> name on this black uh, ball cap, and it said speed. And everybody thought they had to do with um, rockets and stuff. And no, the women said it's short for stampede. <laughs> and so I wore that hat all the time I was in high school. So um, that's my signature story. But what happened next was um, the rockets were getting so fast. I just, I was using Polaroids. Just couldn't, you were taking pictures of smoke. So I called the press, local press up and asked them, um, you got any fast cameras? Well, how fast you want? You got to be over a thousand frames a second. Damn, what are you taking pictures of? Propeller props running? I went, no, rockets. Now, see, for a couple years, it'd be a sunny day. You're 12 miles away, and you can hear thunder. And it's blue skies. <laughs> like, where, what is this noise all the time? And uh, it was a well-kept secret for a couple years. Um, I did some things on the rockets. Um, I made this uh, boron carbon compound. It had some other stuff in it. And I paint the rockets with it. And what it does, um, I was rising up so high, I was coming up on the uh, Port Columbus, uh, Ohio. I was coming up on their radar. And so this material put on there actually absorbed the radar uh, waves. So basically, I guess I was, had the first person to have a stealth rocket. You couldn't see it on radar. I used different chemicals in it, so the plume was clear. So you couldn't see a plume like you see a, a normal rocket launch, and you can't see it on radar, and you really can't hardly see it with the uh, human eye. So all you'd hear is this thunder on blue days. And when I told the press I was trying to catch a rocket, uh, it's Mount Vernon News. That's when everything changed. Um, the reporters went, you're building rockets? How long have you been doing this? About two years. Is that the sound we hear? I'm di and I, I live 12 miles from Mount Vernon, and I said, I didn't want to say anything. So the the photographer came out, Virgil uh, Grissom, and, not Grissom, uh, Virgil, I think his last name is, and um, Hal Clausen. And uh, Hal was the head reporter, the editor of uh, Mount Vernon News, and... Um, him and uh, Virgil came out. Virgil was the camera guy. So my dad was with me, and um, we shot. They, I said, well, get your cameras ready. And I don't know what they were thinking. I guess they were expecting a, like a bottle rocket. And this rocket come out of that pit like a like an ICBM out of a silo. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's big, it's powerful. And my dad said, uh, 
Hey, David, I don't think they got the shot. Look at him. I was standing over there, and the reporter's pad was hanging down by his side. The the camera guy's camera is dangling from his arm, and both their mouths were wide open, and they were watching this thing go. And I went, dang, did you get any pictures? And went, uh, no. <laughs> so we built an, I had another one ready to go, and uh, they got some pictures of it this time. But, man, they went and filed that story on, uh, back in those days, it was uh, uh, API, UPI. And, um, man, it was not, it was a circus after that. Uh, I had everybody in the world wanting to talk to me. So what happens then between the ages of 11 and 17 when you were a unwilling visitor to Area 51? You want to Before you, yeah. Characters start showing up. Um, my mother um, had to go back at work at age 40, and she went to uh, med school. She started out as a candy striper, and she became um, an RPN or LPN. And then she became a CC technician, a coronary care technician. And she was the first female in Ohio to be in charge of a coronary care unit that was a brand-new hospital built in Mount Vernon called Martin Memorial. Now, uh, that might not seem big news to anybody today because it's so common, but, man, this is, this is 1966. I mean, that is a big thing, a coronary care unit. So anyway... Uh, she had two patients that she's taken care of. Um, the woman in Arizona was okay, but Irving, um, he uh, he he's 90 years old. Both of them are in their 90s, and, and his heart's really bad. So Irving in Arizona, LeMay, and they have a son named Curtis. You ever heard of Curtis LeMay? Yeah, General Curtis LeMay. That's him. That's her son. And... He is so big and famous and popular that he could only see his parents at about 2 or 3 in the morning. My mother worked from 11 p.m. to 7 in the morning, and she was in charge of the coronary unit. So she was in charge, and he would he got to know my mother really well. Uh, general Curtis LeMay is a four-star Air Force general. He was the chief of the Joint Chiefs under President John Kennedy. He was the also the chief of the Joint Chiefs in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this is the guy that would launch the weapons. So this is a pretty big deal. Anyway, um, he got uh, another thing, a lot of things about Curtis. He, um, General LeMay uh, de- built and designed the B-52 Stratoforces. He also created and founded uh, SAC, Strategic Air Command, of which the Stratoforces and uh, subs became our nuclear deterrent in the program of MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which we're still living under. And um, if you're not familiar with MAD, it's a great name. Um, Mutual Assured Destruction means that if I launch my missiles at you and you launch yours at me, you can be assured we're going to destroy ourselves out of, we're annihilate, extinction. So nobody wants to get into that fight because you can't win mad until somebody came up with an idea of of a term called first strike. And that's where you have something so fast that you can hit somebody so hard that they can't retaliate and you win mad, which that's, that's an oxymoron. You can't win to begin with. So anyhow, that's how um, 
that was the environment at the time. So LeMay would come in and see his dad, and he got to know my mother really well. And one night, I'm asleep, and uh, she takes my math book to LeMay because he was interested in, when she told him about it. And he was in, and she had some Polaroid pictures of the rockets and stuff. So now he's really getting interested. So he looks at the math book, and he's no dumb. He's not dumb at all, being who he is. He's reading it, and he goes, "Ask my mother, you got a copier?" <laughs> he so hold, hold it right there, because I realize that we have gone over an hour on the first segment, and this is when things get start getting deeper, Absolutely. right? Yeah, so when we get back, we'll continue from this point until when you go to Area 51. So, folks, you don't want to miss this. And this could turn into maybe a trilogy of interviews in the future because I don't think we'll be able to cover all all of it. But I'll try to cover as much as we can in segment two. So come back with us. David, how can people learn more about your work, your oh, website? Yes, uh, they build a website on me. I, you know, I don't even track his stuff. I live in a mountain, uh, on a mountain, and um, but I have a, a producer that uh, built a website. It's called. Uh, you go to www. Three W's. Uh, Americas. A M E R I C A. America with an S. Americas fall from space. Dot com. All one word, all small letters. So it's www.americasfallfromspace.com. And all the stuff I'm talking about, you see photos of it, and, that, and it's just all the hard evidence everybody's been wanting to see. So, well, uh, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with a genius, David T. Adair, and he's going to tell us so much more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first hour of six of this trilogy, The Life and Technology of David Adair. We only scratched the surface. If you want to listen to the rest, just click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com. Now, join me in the Veritas member section to listen to hour two. We'll take a quick break, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section. Enjoy.
light of your compassion arise to bring a quick end to the flowing stream of the blood and tears. They are drunk with demonic delusions. What is right and what is wrong? Very Toss Show. The Very Toss Show is a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. 